What's a droplet? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to episode 33 of Fatal Error. I'm Sarush. And I'm Chris. And this week, we wanted to dive uh, into Sarush's experience in Serviceside Swift. So, uh, we uh, in a previous episode last season, we talked about your uh, your experiences with Serviceside Swift thus far, and you launched a thing. You launched Beacon, right? I sure did. Um, we I think when we talked, I was like five days into Serviceside Swift. Mm-hmm, I think that's right. Um, so now that yeah, now that's more like five weeks, maybe a little more than that. We have a little more to talk about, so I have a lot more experience and I know a lot more things. Awesome. Um, and would be happy to share sort of my knowledge about it. Before we dive into that, do you want to pitch us on Beacon a little bit? Or at least at least explain what it is that you built. Right. So Beacon is an app that Ashley Nelson Hornstein and I built. Uh, we built it in five weeks for WWDC. We built it real fast. Um, and uh, essentially what it does is um, you can kind of post events and post when you're available to do stuff. And your friends can kind of see that. We try to do smart push notifications to get people um, to see like when you or like when your friends does something. And then um, they can just hop on that event and say like, oh, I want to see Wonder Woman tonight as well. And um, so it works out really well at WWDC just because everyone's always running around and nobody knows where the cool parties are and nobody knows where their friends are. Um and That's something that when I've attended WWDC, I found just really stressful, honestly. <laughs> yeah, and it was even worse this year because of uh, because of San Jose. Nobody knew where anything was in San Jose, so we were all just kind of aimlessly wandering around trying to figure out like where should we go, which yeah. we do. And um, so we had a good amount of success. Like there were uh, people organized morning runs. Friend of the show, Curtis Herbert, organized some morning runs. There were like dinners, lunches, drinks, coffees. There was there was like a microblogging meetup, which was pretty cool. That Manson, Reese, and Gene McDonald put oh, together. Cool. And uh, one of the weirdest things: uh, several Apple engineers also put their labs on Beacon, so to try to like get people to come to them. Really? Which I'm not actually sure if they're allowed to do, but like we obviously let them do it. Cause it was that's awesome. really cool. <laughs> yeah, it was really great. So that sounds like a very successful like launch for for yeah. WWDC. And the server did not fall over, so that's really good. And that's something that we wanted to talk about. When we last talked, uh, you had right you you had four or five days of server side Swift experience. You were using Vapor, and uh, you were you were just diving into it. I'm trying to remember what all we talked about. You thought the documentation was a little bit lacking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, what's changed in your experience? Like, what do you feel better about? What do you feel differently about? Like, how is your your how have your thoughts about Swift on the server changed in the last um, the last six weeks or so? Right. So or the last ten weeks now. Uh, yeah, eight weeks, something. I don't know. We started in early. We started like the like the last day of April, I think. Something. Like that. Okay. One thing is, you just have so much more familiarity once you've been working with the platform for a while. So, like now, it's not hard for me to like figure out okay well where do i need to put the tries because these statements throw and these don't where do i need to put the like um you know why is this thing not compiling i've seen this this particular compiler error before so in particular i'm thinking of like when you build json on the server um the way that uh vapor does it is with this thing called like a node and a node represents um, like structured data. So like it's an enum that can be in many different states. So it's either a string or an int or a float or a double um, or a date or whatever. Okay. And so when you create a JSON object, you create it with one of these nodes. And so the node can be like 
how do I put this? So like, and we're getting really in the weeds, which I think people like the weeds. <laughs> um, I hope people like the weeds. Uh, write it, write to us. Send us an email if you like the weeds. But yeah, so like, so like, let's say you're setting up this this node. You set it up with a dictionary literal because your JSON is going to be a dictionary. And then if you put something in there that's not convertible to one of these uh, to one of these JSON objects, you'll get like a really inscrutable error. And it's like now that I've done it a little bit, I see oh like oh it's that error again. I must have put like you know some kind of weird object in here that isn't convertible freely to JSON, and therefore like uh, I need to go and like find that and fix that. This is part of the reason that I want, this specific problem is part of the reason that I want conditional conformances because I think they'll make it a lot more easy to work with JSON because you can say, well, a dictionary, if it only has JSON objects in it, is also a JSON object. And then, like, your a lot of those problems just kind of go away. So I'm really looking forward to that, although I've, I don't know if it's going to come in Swift for it. Now I'm so deep in the stack. <laughs> Chris, you got to save me from the stack. we got to pop this a couple levels. So, so at a high level, it sounds like you're saying you're, just much more familiar with the errors that you might encounter, like common problems that you encounter, like just more familiar navigating this whole, like the stack of, of how Vapor works, right? Yeah, for sure. Learning the platform, learning how right. like the RM stuff works, learning um, the ins and outs of Postgres and like, well, this query won't work because of this reasons and this will need an index over here and like just better at it. And that's got to be similar to the process of learning like iOS development at, at first, right? You're yeah. getting to know UI kits, rough edges, right? You're getting to know um, may- maybe core data. Uh, they, this, oh core data won't work for this because of whatever reason, right? Um, right. Yeah. So that it yeah. sounds... And I kind of think it's going to be true of any platform you kind of develop on. You need to learn its quirks. Like I don't think I could make an app kit app for the Mac just like tomorrow no. and there's a lot of little things i'd have to learn <laughs> yeah absolutely even though i am fluent in objective c and swift and and whatever else yeah so yeah how i mean how many quirks have now that you've actually deployed something how many quirks have you have you encountered would you say it's it's less quirky than ios development more quirky um it's gotta be more quirky really i'm pretty sure it's way more quirky let me give you a couple of examples of quirkiness so part of it is like, you know, people say tooling or whatever, but part of it is the tooling is just not there. So you're, you're like, you, know, you edit the code in TextMate, you tab over to uh, the terminal to, you know, build the thing. When you build, you end up with like build errors. And then those build errors, you know, they aren't like on the line the way they are in Xcode. So you kind of have to parse through them and figure out, okay, what is this build error actually saying? Like, where is this problem? Um, this would be solved if I like moved to Xcode, which I do need to do, and I think next week I will finally have some time to do that. So like that's a weird, quirky thing. I think last time I shared, had I deployed to Heroku last time we talked? I don't remember, but I don't think that you had. And that's one of the questions that I wanted to ask: is what's the deployment process like? What are you deploying to? What is your sort of um, ops like? What what? How are right. you serving this? Right. Right, right, right. So uh, short answer is Heroku. Long answer is um, everything is hilarious and totally ruined. Uh, no, it's fine. Um, <laughs> I, I have to hear about this. Yeah, so so the funniest thing about the Heroku thing was you can you can fix your Swift version by putting a, fi- a dot file in your repo that's just called like dot Swift hyphen version. And you put just 3.1 or 3.0 in there. If you leave that out, it'll just like pick one. <laughs> and um, it's horrible. So it turns out that like Swift Foundation on 3.0 and 3.1 had a broken base64 encoder. 
Uh, it would just crash when you huh. try to base 64 encode data. Okay. And so, and Vapor relies on the built-in foundation base 64 encoder. So when I was trying to do um, OAuth stuff, I maybe told the story already. I'm not sure, but it was a Patreon episode. So oh yeah, uh, I, I remember this. It. But yeah, let's let's hear it again. Yeah. So um, so yeah, so base 64 encoding was broken. Um, so then I pinned it to the right version. That was part of the problem. And then pinning it to the right version turned on stack traces for some reason. Um, and before this issue wasn't happening in my local, it was only happening um, on uh, on Heroku. So every time I made a change, I'd have to wait like six minutes for the thing to deploy so that I could actually see if I fixed it. So this was literally like 12 hours of debugging. It was horrible. So when you say is it quirky, like it's pretty quirky. Um, it turned out eventually that I found out that it was the foundation base 64 encoder. I found a totally swift base 64 encoder on the internet um, and started using that instead. And that solved the problem. Okay, well, I'm glad. Wow, I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, it was it was brutal. It was like I I think I was like it was like a Friday. And I was like working on it, and every time I like I thought I had it, I was like, okay, one more deploy, one more deploy, and I swear to God, before I knew it, it was five in the morning, <laughs> and I went to sleep, and I woke up at noon the next day, and worked until five uh, that afternoon until I finally got it, and it was people in the in the vapor Slack that helped me. That's so awesome. you know to the to the point we talked about in the last episode about like ask questions because. People can help you, and they're you know sometimes they know things that you need to know, and they can tell you that information faster than you figuring it out. Yeah. But once I asked, they were like, "Oh, do this and this and this, and maybe this will have a problem. Yeah. And this will show you a problem." And so, yeah, so that was a very quirky thing. Um, as for the rest of the deployment, it's not too bad. Um, we're doing a mono repo, which is Ooh. interesting because yeah, yeah, I'm, that sounds like you've got I'm, questions. I'm very excited about this. Yeah. Um, so right now we're not do we're not taking advantage of the mono repo very much. There's just two folders, API and iOS, and people can just sort of like work in there and uh, and it's fine. And then, but the thing is that when you deploy to Heroku, your app has to be the root thing in the directory. It can't um, not be the root thing in the directory. Can you so deploy? The way you, can you deploy just a directory to Heroku, or you deploy the whole repo? Yes, you can deploy just a uh, directory. So that's called like Git subtree. And so it's like some tool that's built in a Git. And it will basically repack all of your commits and only like, like create a new commit for every change that's only in that repo and basically chop off some like prefix. Hmm. Okay. So it will create a brand new tree of commits and then it will push that to a special branch on the same repo. And then Heroku is listening to that branch. And when I push to that branch with the subtree commands, it just does the thing and it deploys. Cool. Okay. It's pretty good. Yeah. The only problem with it is that it has to repack every commit individually. And so the more commits you have, the longer it takes. So we're up at like 700 commits now. I'm like getting to the point where it's like, all right, we got we to gotta figure something out. I, yeah. I did a little research today, and I think there's a way around it where you can like kind of reuse the work from previous Git subtree commands, which should make our deploys a lot faster. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It occurs to me that we're using the term monorepo without defining it. So uh, do you want hey, to call. do you want to define it? I don't know if I could give a good definition, but I could take a stab at it. Okay. Well, I'll, um, let's do it. Yeah. So so my understanding is basically like a monorepo is a Git repository that has more than one program in it, um, usually separated by folders. And the benefit to it is that everything always stays in sync. So that if you make a server-side change, you can make the client-side change at the exact same time. There are also drawbacks, one of which we just talked about, where you have to repack everything. Is that a good 
definition, do you think? Yeah, I think that's a good definition. Uh, if I, if I were to take a stab, I would say more or less the same thing. I would just, I, I would also note that, um, you would normally use this to put like projects that have some dependency or some relation to each other in the same repo. Uh, so, for example, an iOS app and the server side that ha- that powers that iOS app, right? Or the iOS right. and Android apps and the server side, um, or maybe uh, library internal libraries and applications that use those libraries. And right. the idea here is that this, in some ways, kind of shortcuts uh, the um, at least for like internal tools like you know your uh, your server and your iOS app for some library and the like go program that uses this library uh this helps get around dependency management issues like you make a change in that library you fix whatever uses the library to work with that change and you commit all this uh you know just to the same branch and send a pull request that includes a change and all the changes that like make the rest of the stuff in your company work with that change. Same with right. like if you change your server side API, commit that, fix the iOS app to work with that API, commit that, fix the Android app, commit that, all the tests run, submit a pull request so that you have the like API change and like the iOS and Android changes all in the same pull request. And that simplifies uh, dependency management and can help simplify project management too. Yeah, for sure. The one thing I would say to that is that is the dream. Although in practice, merging something doesn't mean that it's deployed. Mm, True. Yeah. And so you can make a change to the JSON. If you're adding a key, that's great. Like that's the perfect use case. But if you're trying to change a key, you could change it in, in everywhere at once, but that doesn't actually mean that it's on everybody's phones. So it like, it has its drawbacks. Yeah. That being said, it's like it's easier for us and it's just so easy to just jump back and forth between things. And you you do know that everything's kind of in the same state. And since both of us are Swift engineers, both me and Ashley are Swift engineers, we can touch both sides of it. So if there is a change we want to do, like I remember when I had push notifications, you just like do the stuff you need over here and then do the stuff you need over there and then make a pull request and it's all done. And it's kind of nice. Cool. Kind of nice, kind of convenient. So this has been I a- think I would recommend it. This has been a good detour. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Yeah. I've always been very curious, very excited about the idea of monorepos. Um, right. So I'm, I think it's going to really shine once once Shishtoff makes sorcery work on Linux. I hope you're listening to Shishtoff. You need to fix this for me. <laughs> once that starts working, then what I really want to do is code gen all my JSON nonsense, so that um, I just like like have one canonical whatever. Uh, maybe a protocol, and it just spits out everything for both the server and the client. And that way I can just change the JSON key once or add a JSON key once, and then everything updates. That's what I really want. But the, we're not there yet, tooling-wise. Yeah. Yeah. So how did we get here? We were talking about deployment ops. What's yep. what's your experience running Swift on Heroku and keeping your Swift server up on Heroku? Pretty good. Um, we've had two crashes so far. Tell me about them. Yeah. So so the problem is that the way that all this stuff works, let's say you're deploying a Rails application. Rails just has exceptions. So a Rails exception might mean that you know a validation failed, but it also might mean that like you accessed an array out of bounds. In Swift, those two things are modeled as, as different components, and they're different in Objective-C too. Errors are the, the things that you should be able to recover from. Um, so that might be like a validation error. Exceptions are the things that are really programmer errors and should never have happened in the first place and bring the whole process crashing down. So 
because there's no way, so in, in Objective C, you could at try and at catch, and that would catch an exception. Even though you really weren't supposed to use that, you could. Yeah. So you could build a server with Objective C, and it would, um, like, worst case, throw an exception, something really bad happened. And you could, like, rebuild everything from scratch and, like, you know, rebuild some kind of, like, request responder thing. And you'd be, you know, fine. Sure, yeah. In Swift, you can't catch a fatal error. Um, you can only catch this podcast in your favorite podcatching app. So you can't catch traps on in Swift. So you can't catch fatal error. You can't catch try bang. You can't catch force unwraps. So if you do that stuff, it just, everything crashes. So I, I've been pretty good about not having any crash, not having any like crashing and trapping things in the app, but still something happens somewhere and something crashes. It could be vapor, could be my code. Uh, could be Swift Foundation, could be anything. So, like, notably, this unrecoverable crash will occur if you access an array out of bounds, but, like, more importantly, if you unwrap something that, uh, if you unwrap an optional that's null, right? Exactly, yeah. If you, uh, if you force unwrap something that's nil, mm-hmm. if you uh, try bang something that fails, if you, yeah, there's a few things that can go wrong. Um, and then the, the problem is that right now, the way we have things set up, there's no way to get that crash report. And that's the real challenge. So I need to like invest huh. some time and build some tooling that will like when it crashes, it needs a supervisor that will watch that PID, restart the thing, trawl through the logs, find the crash report, and then email it to me or something. This seems like something that must exist, and like like other people must have deployed Swift on Heroku and have something like this, right? Yeah, I've been asking around, and I don't have too, too much on this. Um, I've been also talking with the uh, IBM folks, the the um, people that work on Kitura, and they have something that's set up that will watch the PID and um, and restart the app, but they don't, I don't think, have anything to catch those traps and those, um, those stack traces yet. Yeah, so that's something I definitely need to figure out. Fortunately, um, we've only crashed twice so far, um, and then, like, you know, just kind of restarting all the dynos fixes it. It sucks when things crash because it goes down for everybody, not just, you know, the one user on the one device, like, like it is with yeah. iOS development. Yeah. So you really want to avoid that? Do you I really want to avoid that? Are you running, like, multiple instances of the server? So if one crashes, like, one can still serve requests or? No, it's one dyno. Okay. Partially for cost reasons and partially sure. for, like, you know, it's, it's extremely performant on the one dyno. Yeah. Um, so I worry. We, we use a tiny, tiny amount of RAM. I mean, the RAM graph is just flat <laughs> at the bottom of the, it's amazing. So that's what happens when kind of things go wrong on Heroku. Um, so, okay. So just to make sure I understand the gist is that when you're writing server-side Swift, you want to make sure that you don't use exclamation points, you handle errors and just return like an error for that request rather than letting the server bomb. Exactly. Yeah. So every, almost everything in Vapor is a throwing function. Okay. Um, and so you can pretty much, you know, try regular try from anywhere. And hmm. um, so it's very, very friendly with Swift errors. And there you can, like I've set up my own middleware to where, so I have like um, errors that I catch and like I might print out their whatever happened into the logs. But then also I have a protocol called externally visible error, which has an external message. So some errors you don't want to expose, right? Like um, yeah, if your database query messes up, like you don't want to be spitting SQL out to the user. That's not right. So what I do is the ones that I do want to like vent to the user. So that'll be like a validation error. Hey, you can't join this event because it's already full. 
um, your comment can only be 500 characters long, that kind of thing. That is all, um, like, conforms to this externally visible error protocol. Like, um, invalid, auth- uh, invalid credentials also conforms to that. And then the other ones just say there was an error, sorry. And so that, like, gives you the ability to sort of uh, separate and, and make it, like, so you separate your errors into, like, oh, these are just going to completely crash my app. These are programmer errors, and, like, I want to catch them, and I want to, like, be able to handle them. Maybe I get emails about them or something in development. I want to, like, you know, actually show the user what happens because I'm the user. And then in prod, like, hide those implementation details because I don't want people to know. So one really common thing was... Um, this is such an interesting thing. So uh, I have a, a helper function that I've added, I think, to every project since I started using it, uh, which I call unwrap. And it's a function I put on every optional. And it either um, returns the value or it throws a nil error, right, if the thing is nil. So okay. that basically, if you're in a throwing context, means you never have to deal with like optional error handling. So this is, okay, and this is useful because exclamation point would just cause the whole like the force unwrap whole program will die. So right. this takes the the case where it's a nil, where it shouldn't be nil, but it might be, and like changes it into Swift's error handling. And that's exactly. something that you can catch with Vapor and like handle gracefully still. Right. You can handle it gracefully, except the error that you get, because, you know, a nil error is not really like a domain-specific error. So the, the details that I include with it are what line did it occur on and what file did it occur in. So that when I see that, I can go and say, oh, it was this time that I called unwrap that like, caused the problem. Yeah. So when that happens, um, like obviously I want to know about that because I need to go and fix that because that's a bug. Um, but there are other times when I, like, that does represent a real thing. It's just not something that I would want to express to the user. So a concrete example of this is um, in Vapor's ORM. Vapor's ORM is called Fluent. Um, and you have, like, you know, let's say an event entity, and your event entity uh, has a, a find function on it. Like every, every model object, every, every database-backed entity has a find function. Um, the find takes an ID, and it's a static function, and then it returns an optional instance of the actual entity that you're trying to find. So you would do like event find by ID 10, and it would return either nil if that ID doesn't exist in the database, or it will return the event itself. Okay. So far so good, right? Yeah. Um, The problem is that like, I had tons of places in my code where I was like, okay, let event equal uh, event dot find, and then I'd pass in the ID, let's say from like the, the, you know, um, path, you know, you might have like event slash, ID slash uh, attend. So that, that ID from the path, I would like extract that and put that in the thing. And then it would be optional. And I don't really want to work with an optional because I know I have to have an event here. Otherwise, something's gone wrong. So then I unwrap it um, using this unwrap function. And then before I had this whole error system set up, I uh, the user, like if they basically tried to access, let's say, uh, the comments for an event that was deleted by someone else, it would say, oh, there was a nil error on, you know, create or a fetch events command on line 55. And it's like, well, I don't actually care about that as a user. What I really want to know is like, hey, this thing doesn't exist. This is a 404. And so it's funny, in beta testing, somebody was like, oh, you're using Swift on the server for this. I was like, oh, that's interesting. We are. How did you know that? And it's because the file name that had been spit out by this new error had like the .swift path oh, extension, yeah. which is pretty funny. <laughs> so what I ended up doing is essentially making another function on every model called find or 404, which is a throwing function. Okay. And so what that does is if it's nil, it will unwrap and it will throw a model not found error, which 
includes the type and it's like it just figures everything out and just does the right thing. So now I can just freely call, you know, try event.finder 404 with this ID. And then it, if it doesn't work, it'll return a correct error that has the correct status code and just like does the right thing everywhere. So basically getting out of optional world and getting into Swift error world is like really, really good on the server. Cool. That's really good to hear. I know that's something that, I mean, I, maybe we've talked about. Uh, I know that we've talked about uh, I don't, in person. I don't know if we've talked about it on the podcast, but um, Swift's error handling, like, it comes up sometimes in iOS development, but often a the right or at least a sane thing to do is just to error out and, and let the program crash, right? Right, right. And yeah, I'm glad to hear that at least in other contexts, it's really useful and it sounds like pretty powerful. Yeah, it's it's like if you're in a context where you can throw, then there's tons of interesting things you can do. Hmm. So like um, we talked about, I think we talked about the Promise Library many, many, well, I think it was years ago now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Back in episode <laughs> four, uh, and, really? and yeah, I think it was I think it was that long ago. Okay, um, but but yeah, in the promise library, because it's not error parameterized, you can throw um, because it can catch any error. And so when you throw from inside, like a, you know, my promise dot then, and inside that block, when you throw, it just gets turned into an error. So when you're ha- when you're dealing with nils and other weird things, you can just kind of dot unwrap, and everything just works. So if you're in a context where you can already throw. The Swift error handling system is like really, really nice. So you can take quite good advantage of it on the server, and I, I think I do an okay job, um, especially when uh, when you start defining your own errors and like doing rich, interesting things with them, such as 404ing, such as oh, this JSON uh, key that I was expecting wasn't there. Like, do something nice for me and tell the user like what key was expected to be there, but is actually not there. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. Do you think you're going to take? Uh, lessons from error handling in Swift on the server and apply them to iOS apps that you write? Or is your error handling style on iOS going to remain more or less the same? That's an interesting question. What I think what it actually comes down to is the fact that everything on in Vapor is synchronous. And so because it's like everything, everything on iOS on the client has to be pretty asynchronous just because network requests are asynchronous. Mm-hmm. Sometimes even disk fetches or asynchronous image decoding, all that kind of stuff. You really want that stuff to be off the main thread. And so any kind of thing that I want to do in that realm, I would probably do in a promise, maybe in a signal. And there you already have error handling, and that's like how you would handle all that stuff. Whereas here, because everything is synchronous, the error handling really shines. So for example, in Katura, which is the, the IBM, uh, IBM Swift on Server framework, Everything there is evented more like Node.js, if you're familiar with that. Um, and so throwing doesn't exactly do the same thing as you would expect. So you actually have like a function on some response that you have to call and tell it, hey, this failed. So it just doesn't work as well. Not, hmm. not that it doesn't work as well. It doesn't work as cleanly with Swift's uh, error handling system. Huh. Yeah. Okay, cool. That's... Um really that's interesting stuff to think about i think um so i know you're still working on you and ashley both are still working on beacon right yep what uh what's what have you been working on lately so the thing we built this week we built uh emoji reactions for comments so when you have a comment you can click a little button and add an emoji reaction and it will like kind of pop up kind of like slack nice um so that's really fun and the other thing we built was mentions so you can actually type a user's Right now, they're Twitter usernames. 
Um, you'll type that in, and then when you do that, it will turn into a link, and it will send them a push notification. Okay. Um, so they know that you got tagged. So like, if you make a new event, you would say, I really want Chris to come to this. You can say, hey, Chris, like, check this one out. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. So mentioning just in general can be kind of a surprisingly hard problem, right? Um, if you, using Twitter names simplifies it a little bit, but like as someone who like started to implement this once for a project a long time ago, um, if you have names that kind of spaces in them, right? If you're doing like right. Facebook style, yep. uh, if things are editable, that, uh, that can make things a bit more complicated, right? Yep. So, uh, are, are you, first of all, yes, are your comments editable? No, which makes life a lot easier. Yeah. Just in a lot of ways. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Immutability. Yay. Immutability. It's kind of nice for programmers. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what is the, um, what's the, I guess I have two questions here. First, what is the user experience like? Are you watching for an at sign and like suggesting usernames or do you just have to know a username or copy and paste a username? Right. So um, this is a minimum viable product. So there's no autocomplete yet. Okay. Uh, I would obviously would love to have autocomplete in the future. Um, but for now, there's no autocomplete. So that makes that, that side of it a little bit easier. Um, but essentially, that would, I think, involve some kind of, as they type an at symbol, listen for the letters after that, and then do some kind of um, query to the server to see like what users there are, and then make those, put those in a list, make yeah. it tappable. And yeah. And this is the classic example of where you may want to use reactive programming because you can nicely <laughs> take this like stream of uh, of changes and debounce it and apply restrictions to it and then transform that into a request that goes to a server. And uh, yeah, that's kind of like textbook reactive programming example. We should do an episode on reactive programming. That'd be great. That would be yeah. That would be great. I don't, <laughs> have, have we done that before? <laughs> <laughs> We'll add that to the show notes. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to add that one to the show notes for sure. Uh, so the nice thing about this, the mention system, the way we have it set up, is it's kind of in memory only. So we can actually retroactively apply it to every comment that's already been sent. And there have been some comments that have been sent um, with uh, mentions already in them. So essentially, I have a class I call mention extractor. And so that gets initialized with some string, which is like the body of the comments, and then has some regular expression that... Um, that like can match against an at sign. Is this is this on the server that this, this is? This is happening? all on the server, yeah. Uh, and it has to be on the server so that you can send push notifications. Right. No, that makes sense. But you may right. also uh I could see how you may want to put this on the client too to do things like style it differently or to allow you to click on that person's name, right? Yeah. So we do actually allow styling and um click on the person's name, but it's a little bit more clever, which is kind of fun. Oh yeah, let's hear it. So when you, let's say you go to save a comment, basically you're going to take your comment body and you're going to run the mention extractor on it and grab all the mentions out of there. Um, a mention is basically just a range and um, the name and then also like a convenience for, uh, like property for like name with at. So you add an at symbol to it as well, which is great. So once you have that, then you can kind of go look up those users and see if they're, first of all, you want to see if they're real because you don't want to send push notifications to, or, and you don't want to even create mentions for, for users that don't exist in the database. And then once you have that, then you have those users based on their kind of Twitter usernames, and then you can send all their push notifications out. So that's on create. Pretty straightforward. There's a little bit of dancing around the fact that like if they get mentioned and they were going to get a push notification anyway because they're an attendee of the event, you got to make a decision. Are you going to do both? Probably not. Which one do you want to do? And so you have to kind of like balance that. So we, we manage all that stuff. Not so bad. But then on the other side, 
where you go to display the thing, we could have taken this exact class and copied it over into the client um, and said, okay, well, when the comment body comes down, parse out the mentions, turn them into links, and like see where life takes you. But the problem is that the client doesn't necessarily know which at usernames are valid and which are just like bogus that somebody typed that doesn't actually mention anybody yeah. who's on the service. Yeah. So that, that stuff is all on the server. So what we do is, in addition to passing the comment body, we also pass the mentions down as JSON. And so the mentions there are, the, the JSON property includes a username, it includes a range object, which has a location and a length, nice. and it has like that name with that. And as you can imagine, because it has a location and a length, that looks an awful lot like a foundation type called NS range, which you may be familiar with. Indeed it does, or just range in Swift now, right? Well, there uh, are yeah, I guess yeah, complicated. tricky details between range uh, and NS range. Um, range doesn't operate on integers because Swift, Swift indexes aren't integers. Right. It operates on string.indexes. Right. In and the context of a string. Yeah. In the context of the view that you're looking at, also. Yeah. So don't forget that. Yeah. Yeah. So Wasn't it's there, a mess. Isn't there a proposal to unify string indexes? Yeah. We talked about it um, on, the, yeah. on episode 31. Yeah. Yeah. We'll add another link to these show notes just to be sure. Uh, yep, yep. The super nice thing about using NS range, there's there's two nice parts. One is it's just integers, so you can um, put it in JSON really nicely as opposed to whatever opaque index type string Swift that string uses. Right. But the other nice part of it is I have NS range on the server, and it uses the same implementation for like figuring out ranges and like finding all the matches of NS regular expression inside an NS string. Yeah. And so because it's the same implementation, I know that when I get an NS range on the server, it's actually going to be the exact same NS range that the client would have found if it had access to the same data. Assuming, so my only thought here is that assumes that your server and client are both working on the same, like looking at indexes in the same string view, like the the same UTF-16 or UTF-8 view, right? Right, right. but the thing is that um, regular expression doesn't work on Swift.String, it works oh, on that's right, an S-string. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're purely in foundation world. Okay. Yeah. And so you get these ranges out, and then you know that they're going to be the same because it's the same library backing both. It's just, you know, it's NS strings on both sides. Nice. And so once you do that, then on the client, you can kind of iterate over your mentions and create a new attribute for each range um, on your comment body, and then add the link attribute, add the um, bolding, the coloring, whatever else you want to do, and you're off to the races. You only have to parse mentions once. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds like absolutely the right way to do it. I think unless you have anything else you wanted to talk about, we should probably end here. It seems like we're... Yeah, we're uh, going a little bit long. Yeah. Um, no, that's about it. Uh, I'm sure, you know, as we do, as I do more of this stuff, and as me and Ashley discover more interesting quirks of Switch on the server, we'll talk more about it. But for the most part, it's been really fun, and I've been really enjoying it. So, yeah. Awesome. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, listeners, if, if you have questions or things you want to hear about in Swift on the server, then... Uh, let us know. I'm happy to make Suresh answer them. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. So yeah, cool. Um, it was good to talk to you as always, Chris, and I will talk to you next week. As always, and I'll talk to you later.